Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the sermon. Uh, before we get into things, I want to tell you, share with you a little bit about our Joy Project. Uh, every year, for those of you who don't know, we do a special offering that we call the Joy Project, which all of which goes back into the community to help meet needs and bless people around the time of Christmas, just to just to show people the love of Jesus in a practical way and minister to them for the glory of God. Uh, so we take uh, special offerings for that, and then what happens, we put some of that towards our strategic ministry partners who are gospel-centered organizations working uh, to just benefit and help people in our community, to local schools with families who are going through hard times, and then some of it goes just to meet the needs that come up with our own local church family. Uh, so to give you an idea of just what a normal joy project is, like if we hit like $10,000 in that, we're like, that was a really good joy project. So do you have some context what I'm about to tell you, which is in addition to our kingdom campaign and normal giving, the joy project this year was over $20,000. That is amazing. It's such an awesome thing just to be a part of a church community that is investing in the community and that wants to benefit and bless other people as well as just take on things for themselves. So um, as we get into Christmas, right, this is my wife's favorite time of year. Uh, if she had her way, we would start setting up for Christmas right after the 4th of July. You know, the other holidays are still allowed to happen. We're just not going to talk about them. Everything is about Christmas. Like, if she, like, it's so bad. Like, if she watched seven movies this year, I promise you eight of them are Christmas movies. Okay? Like, that's bad. Yeah, I know. That's the point of the math. Okay? Like, I, and it's not just like she watches the normal Christmas movies, like Elf or Christmas Story, the big ones that everybody knows about. Like, I've seen her watching Christmas reality TV contests about Christmas lights. Like, I didn't know that exists. It's like, welcome to being normal. Uh, so basically the idea of the show is it's sort of like American, America's, American Idol. There it is. Words are hard. Uh, it's sort of like American Idol, but instead of people singing, you have people that have decorated their home to look like a holiday flea market. <laughs> and the grand prize of it's like you put tens of thousands of dollars and countless hours into the decorations of these homes. And they look incredible, mind you. And the grand prize for the contest is like a gift card to Applebee's. And you're like, this is, uh, so we're, her and I are a little different in that. Like my, I like Christmas movies. I like one particular Christmas movie that I think should be watched every year as the ultimate of all Christmas movies. And I'll tell you right now, there are two kinds of people in the room. They're kind of like, oh, I wonder what movie he's going to say. And the kind that immediately know that the answer to that is Die Hard. Okay? If you're the second one, y'all my people, okay? So we have a little bit of a different approach to Christmas, my wife and I. Uh, but the exciting part, you know, when we have a four-year-old, and man, Christmas changes a lot when they hit like four, right? Like before that, they're not totally aware of what's going on now. Like all of a sudden, everything's changing, and so we're going through all the preparation, decorations, trees, presents, wrapping, all that fun stuff, which I did almost none of. Um, but we're getting all that stuff ready, uh, and my wife plays Christmas music all the time on a loop, and I'm, you know, I'm not a huge fan. Okay, I'll just, <laughs> oh, I didn't realize the Grinch was white. Uh, yeah, that's, <laughs> look, I like Christmas music, okay, let me be fair. It's just after like five in a row, it all starts to sound the same to me. So we got that playing on a loop in our house. Rowan's sitting there not eating his food when he should be eating his food. He's not paying attention. He's just living his best life in his own little world. Songs are playing. 
And then the song changes. And the first words of the song that blare out through our kitchen, I saw mommy kissing Santa Claus. And Rowan all of a sudden snaps to attention. He is very alert. And so he looks at Erica. He looks at the Alexa that's playing the song. He looks back at Erica. He's got a little scowl on his face like he is not having it. And he's like, wait, for real? Like there's some tomfoolery going on here. You better start explaining yourself, Ma. And I'm losing it because he kind of missed the point of the song, which is what we all kind of do, right? Even as adults, it's so easy for us to miss the point. In a season of decorations, trees, lights, cookies, parties, presents, and so, so much wrapping, it's easy to lose sight of what this time is all about. Christmas is the time where we celebrate the coming of our King. The joy to the world is that Jesus came into it. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, we're going to be in Luke chapter 15, verse 11, to celebrate Christmas Eve. And you might be sitting there thinking, that does not sound like a text that's about the birth of Jesus. You're right. Luke 15 does not tell us that Jesus came. Luke 15 helps us understand why Jesus came. See, Jesus did not come so that we could have another holiday off of work and wear flannel pajamas and decorate our house with fake shrubberies that are lit up, which all of which somehow work fine for the day you buy them and then you put them in a bin, they don't touch them for a year and somehow in just sitting there, they, one of the bulbs stops working, the whole thing has to get thrown away. Good thing you took the time to store it all year. Now you gotta toss it out and start over again. That's not why Jesus came, to perpetuate that cycle. Now us good church people, right? We know why it happened. We know what this season is all about. And we have nice little things that we like to say to remind people, right? Cute little phrases. Anybody? Like, I just want to see if you can get this without me queuing it up for you. What's the thing that we as church people love to say around this time of year? There it is. Jesus is the reason for the season. And it's hard to argue with that because it rhymes. And we love saying it. Okay, like to the point where there's a part of me that starts to wonder if there's some kind of contest that's going on. Right, nobody tell me about like, so at the end of the year, somebody's going to come around. How many times did you say that Jesus is the reason for the season? Oh, 26? <laughs> Try harder next year. You're not even on the list. We just love to say it. The problem is, it's wrong. <gasps> He's trying to take Christ out of Christmas. No, he is not. Christmas is the time where we celebrate the birth of Jesus, God coming into the world. That is what happened. That is not why it happened. The reason for something is not about the what. It's always about the why. Okay, well, now we're going to get clever. So why? What's the reason for the season? In a word, treason. Treason is the reason for the season. If you like the first one because it rhymed, that one rhymes twice. Bonus points. Christmas exists because we committed treason against the Almighty God. Oh, Christmas Eve's getting weird this year. Let me tell you that Jesus didn't come so that we would have a gift exchange opportunity. He came to fix what we broke. Because you and I and every person that has ever walked this earth 
rebelled against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And when you rebel against the sovereign ruler, when you reject the authority of the rightful leader of a kingdom or nation, there is a word for that, and that word is treason, which, let's be honest about it, is what we all do. When we try to govern ourselves, live for ourselves, make our own choices, be our own person, live our own life, rejecting the authority and the instructions of our rightful king, that is treason. Because what we are attempting to do when we seek to live for ourselves and to be ourselves and to ignore the instructions of God is we're attempting to replace him as the authority in our lives and to seat ourselves on the throne that belongs only to him. And every person that's ever walked this earth is guilty of treason. We even have a special word for it when we do it spiritually. It's called sin. Romans 3 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You don't believe me, I don't even need the Bible to prove it. Here's how I know that we have all fallen short. You can't even live up to your standard for yourself. How often do we make our promises to ourselves? Oh, I'm never drinking again. I'm never eating that again. Never texting them again. Never doing that. I'm going to eat better, get in better shape. I'm going to take better care of myself, be a better person, live a better life. How often do we set a standard for ourselves and then fail to keep it? That's what a New Year's resolution is, right? It's a promise we make to ourselves so that we can break it three weeks later. We can't even live up to our own standard for ourselves. Not to mention God's holy standard for life. See, sin is not doing some horrible, evil thing. Sin is the failure to meet God's standard. And of that, we have all fallen short. Because church, you and I, we are not messed up people in need of a life coach. We're sinners in need of a savior. And this is why Jesus is infinitely better than Santa. Right? The whole premise of Santa is that Santa rewards good performance. But the whole message of the gospel is that Jesus rescues us from a bad one. That's the reason for the season. That is why Jesus came to earth. The reason that we have Christmas, the reason for all of it is the treason that we committed against God. Jesus comes to deliver us from it because church, this is not a holiday. It's the beginning of our rescue mission. The reason that Jesus came into the world, in his own words, Luke 19, 10, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. If we don't understand this, we miss the entire point of Christmas. We miss the entire point of the gospel because over and over in the Bible, it talks about Jesus' heart, his desire for the lost. In fact, that's what Luke 15 in our text today is all about. Jesus tells three parables, all of which are about something being lost and being found. A lost sheep, a lost coin, a lost son. For those of you who have been around here for a little while, what's the rule when the Bible repeats itself? The people pay attention. Yeah. So three times in a row, to make sure we don't miss it, Jesus tells us about the importance of the lost. Let's get into it. Verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to have need. 
And, when, and so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods the, pig ate, the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. All right, so in the first century, uh, the way an inheritance would work, so if you were a girl, you got married off for a bride price, so you could get your, your dad some livestock or some land, good job. If you were a boy, you got an inheritance. And so the way an inheritance would be was everything that the father had divided by the number of sons plus one. Okay, so that plus one is called the extra portion or sometimes the double portion. That goes to the firstborn son. So if a father has three sons, half of the estate goes to the oldest, and the other half gets divided amongst the other two. You tracking with me here? This father has two sons. So two-thirds goes to the oldest, one-third goes to the youngest. Youngest son comes to dad, says, hey, give me my share of the inheritance. Here's the thing. He's got no right to do that. And an inheritance is something that you receive when your father dies. What he is saying to his father is, Dad, I wish you were dead. You mean nothing to me. I don't want to have a relationship with you. I don't want to know you. I don't want to spend time with you. The only thing that you have that I want is stuff. So give me that, and I will leave to go live my life, and I don't have to deal with you anymore. I tell you, when you become a parent, this story hits a whole lot different. And picture your kids saying that to you. This is how we talk to God. I don't want anything to do with you. I want to go my own way. Live my own life. Be my own person. I don't want to follow you. I don't want to serve you. I don't want to obey your rules. I want to do what I want to do. To be my own person. To go my own way. To live my own life. And we can tell ourselves in the back of our minds that we believe that God exists as we continue to live as if he doesn't. But on a practical level, every aspect of our life was a rejection of God, was a denial of him. Now, for some reason, this father gives his son what he asks for. And so the young son, he goes to a country that's far off, and he starts spending all the money that his father gave him. He's not making investments. He's not setting up a life for himself. He's the original YOLO, okay? He's just spending it and wasting it, making a whole bunch of bad choices. The money runs out, and then hard times hit. And the young son finds himself broke and alone with nothing to show for his life. He's so desperate, he goes and hires himself out to a local pig farmer. He's so hungry that he longs for the slop that pigs eat. Now, the picture that Jesus is painting here is very vivid. In Jewish culture, pigs are the chief of all unclean animals. So what Jesus is saying is not, oof, he's having a bad day. What he is painting is a picture of someone who has hit rock bottom. There is nothing left to fall out. This is as bad as they could imagine it getting. Verse 17 but when he came to himself, he said, 
How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son, this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. What drove the son home? It wasn't his love for his father. It wasn't that he missed his father. It wasn't remorse. It was need. He was hungry. And he knew, hey, this is really rough here. Even my dad's hired people have it better. The thing is, the son is still thinking about himself. He's still focused on himself. And here's the deal. Most of us, when we start our journey with God, that's the same motivation that we have. We don't start with God out of a deep, profound love and honor of him. We start because we need something from him. And we are desperate. And so we're like, just this, if this works, you know, let's try it. And so the son forms a plan. He starts crafting a speech. God, if you do this for me, I'll read my Bible more, I'll pray more, I'll go to church more, I'll be a better person, I'll live a better life. He's like, if I can say the right things, if I can do the right things, then my father, he'll let me back in, not as a son, but at least I can be a servant and I'll have a better life than what I've got right now. So he's got his speech ready. He's got his plan to prove it, to earn it, to work his way back. And it says his father sees him while he's a long way off. What that tells us is not that it was a great coincidence. We don't know how long the son was gone other than there's an implication of years have passed. It wasn't just good fortune the father happened to look out and see his son. No, he saw him while he was a long way off because the father was looking. Because he was waiting. Because every day, since the day his son left, his father sat out on the porch looking to the horizon where his son left, hoping that he would see his son coming back, hoping that today would be the day that he could see his son return. And so as he's waiting, he sees in the distance the shadow of his son, and he is so overwhelmed with compassion and joy and excitement that as a father, he gets up and he runs. Go, cool, I get the, listen, Jewish men don't run in the first century. There's a reason for that. They wore robes which flow. And so in order to run, they would have to reach down, grab their robes, tuck it into their belt, in which case the nethers are sort of out there. Okay? It was extremely shameful. No man would do it to himself. Jewish men in the first century do not run. It was a matter of principle, but this father does. He doesn't care. He's not worried about how other people look at him. He's not going to care what other people in the community say. He's willing to damage his reputation to get to his son just a little faster. The son starts in on a speech. Dad, I... he doesn't care. And he doesn't want to hear that speech. He just wants his son. And so he orders his servants to bring a robe, a ring, and sandals. This represents honor, identity, and freedom. 
And some of y'all need to hear this right now. Okay? Because you know you were the wandering son. You know you were the prodigal. You were the one that went astray. And like Atlas trying to carry the weight of the sky on his shoulders, you are carrying an impossible weight of guilt and shame. And you have been for years. And you've heard about grace. And you've heard about forgiveness. And you're like, that's awesome. That's great. But that can't be for me. Because you don't think you're worthy of it. You don't think you deserve it. You struggle to believe that God could accept and forgive the things that you've done. And you think in the back of your head, you've got this thing that's like, man, if you knew what I did, if you knew how I lived, you would know this can't apply to me. Here's the thing that you do really well. You understand the impact and the depth of sin. Here's the thing that you do really poorly. You, under, you don't understand the greatness and the power of grace. Here's what you don't see in the text. A guilt trip. The father does not shame his son, ridicule his son, criticize his son. There's no passive-aggressive comment here like, oh, you want to be dead? How'd that work out for you? He's not doing that toxic relationship kind of thing. The father does not criticize, critique, or demean his son in any way. You know what he does? He loves him. He pours grace upon him. He restores him. Because you know what? Despite all of his wandering, his bad choices, his sinful living, his recklessness and the mistakes that he made, do you know what never changed? He never stopped being the son. He never stopped being his father's son. And his father never stopped loving him. You may understand the depth of your sin, but if you are still holding on to the guilt and shame of it, you do not understand the depth of the father's love for you. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and asked him what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I never disobeyed you or your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him and said to him, Son, and he said to him, Son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for you. this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The, the younger brother sort of steals the spotlight in this story, but his father had two sons. And while the older son, the younger son ran off, the older son stayed home. He did what he was supposed to do, his duty. He honored his father. He obeyed his father. He served his father. He checked all the boxes, did all the right things. 
Now, while he shared his father's house, he did not share his father's heart. Because when his brother came home, he was not rejoicing. He was not celebrating. He was bitter and angry and resentful. Because the older brother thought that his behavior, that his choices, that the things he had done earned him something more, made him somehow better than his brother. See, sometimes it's difficult for those of us who didn't do the wandering, who, who stayed faithful, were in church and, and go to Bible studies all the time. And after years and years of devotion, sometimes it's easy for our emphasis to become entirely about the duty and to lose complete sight of the delight. And to forget what this is all about. So notice what the father says to his oldest son. Not all that I have will be yours, future tense. All that I have is yours, present tense. The joy and the peace of Jesus, these are not rewards after we suffer and struggle through this life alone. They're given to us here and now. Church, the kingdom is not near. The kingdom is here. And the inheritance that God brings and gives to his children is not just some eternal thing that he pours out on us in the end. It is something that we have here and now that we can walk in his joy and know his peace and experience the comfort and the life that he gives right now. Because this older son was wrong too. They were both wrong. See, whereas the younger son's problem is he struggles with guilt and shame, the older son's problem is that he struggles with pride and self-righteousness. The younger son got lost far away. The older son got lost at home. One son was physically distant from his father. The other was spiritually distant from his father. One's sin was outward. The other's sin was inward. One son rebelled while the other son was religious. But they were both sinful. They were both wrong. They just sinned differently. And in that we see the true heart of the father. Because what does he do? He goes out to both. When he sees his son who wandered it a long way off, he runs to his son and his older son. When he's outside like a grown man pouting at a party, throwing a temper tantrum, he leaves the party to go out to his older son. He goes to both. He bridges the gap with both. He ministers to both and invites them in to himself. You see, church, this is the reason for Christmas. Our lives created a separation between us and God, and God takes the initiative to reach out and to draw us back to himself, and he does so in the most relatable way possible. He doesn't show up as a booming voice in the sky, this is how you must live. And despite the fact that almost all of what we know about Jesus takes place during the last three and a half years of his life, Jesus didn't show up as a grown man. He could have, but he didn't. Jesus came as a baby, 
was born as a baby, that he would experience life as we do, that our Savior would understand our struggle, that our Savior would know our suffering. He was born weak and frail, dependent and at need of others. He was born helpless to take care of himself just like we are. In every aspect of his life, he understands what it is like to be us. That's what Christmas is about. That God's love for us was so great that he sent his son to come as a baby to rescue us from ourselves. We sinned, so God sent a baby. We rebelled, so God sent a baby. We rejected him, so God sent a baby. We were not good, so God sent a baby. We were helpless and hopeless in our sin, so God sent a baby. We could not save ourselves, so God sent a baby. Because everything that we did, church... Every choice and action we take drove a wedge between us and God, separated us from God. And so what does God do in response? He reaches out to us. We could not climb the mountain of separation to get to him, and so he came down to get to us. We could not call out to him. So he called out to us. We could not reach out to him. So he reached out to us. We could not take hold of him. So he took hold of us. We could not save ourselves. So he saved us. Not because you were good. Not because you were so worthy. And not because you deserve it. But because you are his child. And he loves you. Rowan is four. And so he likes to communicate to us his ratings for things with thumbs up and thumbs down. And if he really feels strongly about something, we get two thumbs up or two thumbs down. And sometimes as a four-year-old, he makes bad choices. And when he knows he's done something he shouldn't, when he can tell that his behavior is causing me to become frustrated, it's this thing that he tends to do where he kind of like shrinks in a little bit he gets kind of shy. His voice gets really soft and he looks up at me and he says, Daddy, are you still my best friend? I'm like, we don't teach him to call us friend. That's just the word that he uses. It's our job to be his parents first. But what he's asking is, do you still love me? Has my behavior changed how you feel about me? because he is too young and immature to understand the reality. And so I tell him over and over and over again because he needs to hear it over and over and over again. I'm like, buddy, sometimes the choices that you make might be this, but to me, you are always going to be this. You need to understand right now, I may not agree with every choice you make. I may not like your decisions. I may not be able to support what you do but none of that will ever change who you are. You will always be my son. And there is nothing in this world that can change the way I feel about you. No decision that you make, no action you take, no words that you say that will ever stop the way I feel about you. I'm not unique as a parent. That's what it means to be a parent. You love your children 
Man, when they hurt, you hurt even more than they do. When they smile, it fills your heart with a joy you didn't even know existed until you saw that smile for the first time. But what the Christmas story shows us is that God is a far better parent than we will ever be. Do you know what your dad wants more than anything? For his children to come home. He doesn't care where you've been. He doesn't care what you've done, the mistakes you've made, the imperfections, the failures, the brokenness of your life. Jesus doesn't say, hey, fix yourself, get your life in order, and then come back to me. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Bring your burdens to me. Bring your struggles to me. Just come. Because your father wants you. And the Bible tells us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you are in Christ, there is no guilt. There is no shame. There is no burden left for you to carry because Jesus has washed it all away. Because this church is our rescue mission. And when that rescue mission meant that the King of kings and Lord of lords had to leave the comforts of heaven and the glory of heaven to come here, he did it. When it meant being born as a commoner, not as a king, he did it. When it meant suffering, anguish of physical torment on a cross, he did it. When it meant carrying the weight of the sin of the world upon his shoulders, he did it. Because there is nothing in this world that can change the way your father loves you. There is no depth or place that he will not go to bring you to himself. You're his desire. You're his heart. And nothing will stop him from trying to bring you home. Because the reason for the season is Jesus coming to save us from our treason. To bring us new life in him. Jesus came into the world and he brought light into it. So on Christmas Eve, we do a candle lighting service. We have some ushers in the back that they're going to get um, some lighters and stuff. When you came in, you should have received a, a candle. Your kids get a fake candle. They've probably been waving that around the whole time and you've been like, stop it. It's okay. Let them wave it now. They're allowed to. For the rest of you, we're all going to stand up together. And the ushers are going to calm down in just a minute here, and they're going to light the candle at the edge of each row. If you didn't get them, you can go. There are some in the back. You can kind of lift your hand up. We'll try to get those to you. But the ushers are going to come down, and they're going to light the candle at the person at the edge of each row. And then when your candle gets lit, we just want you to turn and light the candle at the person next to you. And what this service represents is how Jesus operates. Jesus brings light into the world. He brings light into us. He gives it to us, and then he calls us to share it. Jesus came to rescue you, and then he recruits you to be a part of his rescue team. The light that we have is a light that we shine, and as we share it, it spreads and it grows. And so as we take this, we're going to sing together. We're going to shine the lights, and we're going to remember 
all that Jesus is and all that Jesus has done, that in our darkness, he brought light to us so that we can bring light to others.